This is the fourth week of our sermon series called Peekaboo People. It's a series about people in the Bible who, for one reason or another, felt compelled to try to hide. Today we're going to be in the 22nd chapter of Luke, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And we're, going to, we're going to think about Judas, who tried to hide the fact that he was conspiring with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus, to destroy Jesus' ministry. A while back there was a story in the news about a couple of 22-year-old young men who were caught in a drug bust. These two young men had struck a deal with some cocaine traffickers. They were receiving shipments of the drug and then selling it to their friends. And because this operation was crossing state lines, the FBI got involved And eventually, the two young men were caught and hauled off to jail. Now, you can see a story like that every day on the evening news. What made this particular story unusual is that those two young men were Amish. Now, my wife and I lived in a community for three and a half years that was very heavily Amish. And I can tell you that the one thing Amish people really care about is keeping their communities unspoiled by the sins and seductions of the world. In fact, they're so serious about this that they don't have electricity in their homes, which means they don't have television. They still pump their water out of a well. They drive around town in horse-drawn carriages and still work their fields with horse-drawn implements. They go to great lengths to try to keep their homes and their communities pure and unspoiled. And so you can imagine what a shock it was to those people to realize that two of their own had brought this horrible drug into their close-knit community. One of the um, elders of that community said this, and I quote, the most discouraging thing about this whole affair is that we were betrayed by our own. Well, Jesus could have said the very same thing as he was being marched off to stand trial, for he too was betrayed by one of his own. One of the 12 guys that he had handpicked to be his closest associates. They had lived together and worked together for about three years. He had loved them and encouraged them and taught them and protected them. Jesus had given these 12 guys just about everything he had to give. And then one of them turned on him. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 22, and I'll start at verse 1. It says, The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called the Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. And so this secret meeting officially put Judas undercover and made him a spy, a co-conspirator against our Lord. Yes, he continued to go through all the motions of uh, being a team player, 
as spies do. He continued to meet with Jesus and the other disciples and just pretended that nothing was wrong, but something was very wrong. He was playing a very, very dangerous game of peekaboo. And so in the time we have remaining this morning, I want to share with you three lessons that I think just kind of emerge from this situation that I hope will be very instructive for us. Here's the first one. The sins we commit in secret tend to be especially deadly. Now, most of the sins we commit in public are what we might call impulsive sins or reactionary sins where we maybe respond to something that has happened. For example, if somebody says something rude or ugly to you, you might respond in kind. You might say something rude or ugly back, which would be wrong, but it's something that you're doing because it was done to you first. It's just kind of a reaction thing. Um, Or a simpler illustration might be if you smash your thumb with a hammer and say a bad word. And they probably wouldn't have said that word if you hadn't smashed your thumb with a hammer. Now, I'm not suggesting that these reactionary sins, these impulsive sins, are not bad. They are bad. And you shouldn't do them. And you, if you do them, you need to repent of them. And, and anytime you react with a sinful response to anything, it shows that you have some spiritual growth you need to do, you know, some growing to do. But when a sin is carried out in secret, and it's not a reaction to something that's happened, that means it's not uh, reactionary, it's premeditated. Now, obviously, if a person is keeping his sin a secret, he knows that it could get him in trouble if it were to be discovered. And so he takes precautions. And if he's taking precautions, if he's being careful not to be found out, then he must believe that if he's clever enough, he can get away with this sin. And if he believes that he can get away with any sin of any kind, then he is really disconnected from God. Today, think about your own life, and especially the secret part, the part nobody else can see. Yes, you are entitled to your privacy. I said that a few weeks ago. I want to say it again right now. You are entitled to your privacy. We all have things in our lives. We have struggles. We have issues in our lives that are nobody else's business. And so, yes, you are entitled to your privacy. The question is, have you allowed that private part of your life to become a hiding place for sin? Have you created an area deep in your heart where you've erected walls all around and you won't let anybody see what's in there and God is not welcome there? If so, you have some serious thinking to do. And the first thing you need to think about is the fact that you cannot hide anything from God. You can fool your family. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your coworkers. You can fool your classmates. You can fool a lot of people. See, here's, here's our problem. You know, somebody builds walls to hide an area of their life. We can't see through those walls. But God can. He's got that, you know, that x-ray vision. Sees right through those walls. He can see everything you're doing. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, people judge by outward appearance. They have to because that's all we can see. But the Lord looks at the heart because he can see through those walls. 
One of the things that makes secret sin so deadly is that you develop a false sense of security. You think that because you've tricked your spouse and you've fooled your friends and none of your co-workers know and none of your friends know, you think that because you've got all these people fooled that you're okay. You're not okay. Because God sees everything you're doing. A second lesson that emerges from this story is that being a part of the assembly doesn't necessarily mean you're part of the family. In Luke 22, starting at verse 14, we have the account of the Last Supper. And it's called the Last Supper because it was, yeah, the Last Supper. It was the last chance Jesus would have to sit down with his disciples and share a meal and talk with them. And I want to direct your attention to verse 21. Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. And then it says that the disciples began to discuss among themselves who he could possibly be talking about. And don't you know that Judas had to be one of the main participants in that conversation? I mean, I can just see him acting appalled at the notion that somebody would betray Jesus. I can just see him, uh, you know, acting all surprised. I can hear the indignation in his voice as he denounces anyone who would even dare to think about betraying Jesus. Because you see, that's what you do when you're playing peekaboo. That's what you do when you're hiding. That's how it works. You do whatever it takes. You say whatever it takes to cover up what's really going on. But the point is, Judas was right there at the table, breaking bread with Jesus and the 11, uh, other 11 disciples. You know, but he was participating in the conversation, maybe asking questions, laughing at the other guy's jokes, maybe cracking a few one-liners of his own. To the casual observer, Judas would have looked like just one of the guys. But he wasn't. He wasn't a friend. And so we see that, that being part of the assembly, being part of the group, doesn't make you part of the family. I will guarantee you that at this moment, all across America, in churches all across America, in churches of every kind you can think of, there will be people sitting in seats just like you're doing right now, and there will be some of those people who are part of that family, and there will be people who are not part of the family. There will be people in churches all across America this morning who are there not because they love God, not because they want to worship and honor God. They've got their own reasons that have nothing to do with God. There are men who only go to church to shut up their wives. It's true. There are guys, they know if they don't go to church, their wife is going to nag them all week. And so they just rather go to church. And they go. And they're not here to worship God. They're here so they don't have to listen to their wives all week. And you can usually spot these guys pretty easily. I've learned over the years, you can usually spot these guys. They have a certain expression on their face, and it's not one of joy. And they have certain body language that you, can, that you can spot. But they're not here to worship God. There are business people who go to church in an effort to pick up some new leads, maybe some new customers. 
A friend of mine said that when his church announced that they were going to do a great big new building program, he said the very next Sunday, two building contractors from the community were in church, and they'd never been there before. But they heard about the building program, and they were hoping to get a contract. There are lonely people who go to church, not to worship God, but because they're looking for somebody to date or somebody to marry. Church, basically, to them is a dating service. There are musicians and singers who go to their churches because churches have stages and lights and microphones, and they see that as their chance to shine and promote their talent. Sometimes people go to church to advance their careers. Many, many years ago, there was a guy who had never darkened the door of our church but he announced that he was running for Congress. The next Sunday, he showed up in church. And he was in church almost every Sunday throughout the duration of the campaign until he lost the election, and then he never came back. <laughs> True. And I'm not saying that everybody has a, a, a false motivation, or even that a majority of people do. I mean, even in this story, we have 11 good guys to one bad guy. Eleven to one, good guys to bad guys. And that might be maybe the percentage we would find in any church. But the point is that all it took was one bad guy to do a, little, to do a lot of damage um, to the mission and the purpose of Christ. Today I have a question for you. I know you're here in the assembly. I see you sitting there. The question is, are you a part of the family? Are you really on our team here at PCC? Are you helping to build this ministry? Are you giving generously of your time and your money? Are you praying faithfully for our staff and elders? Are you a blessing to the people sitting around you? Now, I know you don't know everybody in this church. You might know 10 or 15 people, have maybe a half a dozen really good friends. But the question is, are you a blessing to those people? Most importantly, do you really love Jesus? Or are you just here for some personal reason that has nothing to do with God? You know, Jesus once said, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I take that to mean that not everyone who goes to church, not everyone who sings these beautiful songs, not everyone who smiles and gives you a hug on Sunday morning, not everyone who shouts, praise the Lord, is really saved. Not everybody here is part of the family. What about you? Are you part of the family? Or are you just part of the assembly? We want you to be part of the family. Well, that brings me to one more lesson that I think just explodes out of this story. It's that when you are involved in sin, the Lord will try to wake you up and turn you around. Judas, for example, had this whole secret conspiracy thing going on, and, and he no doubt felt uh, very good about it. He thought he had everything under control. He thought his ducks were all in a row. Um, he thought he was being very clever, had all his bases covered. But then as they were sitting there having this last meal together, Jesus just drops this incredible bomb into the conversation. 
He says, sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. And don't you know that had to shake Judas's composure? I'll bet his pulse quickened. I'll bet his blood pressure spiked when he heard those words because at that moment, it was obvious that Jesus knew everything. Oh, but Judas played it cool. He played it cool. He didn't let on. He kept a straight face. You may remember in the very first week of this series, I said that the greatest actors in the world are not the people in the little statues. They're people like you and me who put on incredible performances when the spotlight of scrutiny swings our way and threatens to expose our sin. And here we see Judas putting on a performance that is worthy of an Academy Award. I mean, this is an incredible performance. We know it was a great performance. How do we know that? Because the other 11 disciples didn't know what was going on. He had them absolutely, completely fooled. They're all looking at each other saying, who's he talking about? Probably looked at Judas and said, Judas, who's he talking about? Judas says, I don't know. (laughs) But Judas knew. And Jesus knew. And what I want want you to see here, this is really important, is that Jesus let Judas know that he knew, but he did not blow Judas's cover. And it's really important for us to understand this. Jesus could have exposed Judas to the whole group right then and there. He could have said, guys, let me tell you what your so-called friend Judas has been up to. And if Jesus had done that, it would have forced Judas to abandon this plot and and who knows what direction things would have taken at that point. But Jesus did not blow the whistle on him. And the reason he didn't blow the whistle on Judas is the same reason he doesn't blow the whistle on you and me today. He'd rather wait and give us a chance to fix things ourselves. He wanted to let Judas think about what he was doing and maybe, just maybe, come to his senses and repent. And so instead of exposing everything, he just fired a shot across his bow. Because here's an important truth, friends. Obedience doesn't mean much if the person doing the obeying is being forced to obey. Now you understand this if you're a parent. I mean, if you're a parent, don't you want to get your kids to the place where you know you can trust them to obey and do what they're supposed to do without you having to be there policing them all the time? I mean, doesn't it feel like you've reached a milestone in your family and as a parent when you know you can leave the house, leave the kids at home by themselves, and when you get back, the house will still be standing? Isn't that a good day in your family? Because what does it indicate? It indicates that the kids have grown. They've matured. You see, that's what God wants from us. Obedience that is forced upon us by constant policing, it's not what he's looking for. He's looking for growth and maturity that will lead us to think through the things we're doing and make the right choices. And I think that's why Jesus fired a shot across Judas's bow. He wanted to let Judas know that his secret conspiracy wasn't a secret, hoping that that realization 
would cause him to change course. I think this is the number one thing Jesus could have done to try to wake Judas up and make him want to turn around. And maybe it did cause Judas to have some second thoughts. I, I would think it would most people. But in the end, he decided to go ahead with his plan and Jesus didn't stop him. Here's the question I want you to think about as we begin to wrap this up. Is the Lord trying to wake you up and turn you around today? He recently fired a shot of some kind across your bow. Maybe you have secret sin in your life and you almost got caught recently. Maybe you had a close call. Or maybe something you saw on the news that happened to somebody else. Or maybe something that happened to one of your friends made you think about yourself and the way you're living. Or maybe a few weeks ago in that corner office back there, God put it on my heart to preach on this topic because he wanted this sermon to be a shot across your bow. One thing I can tell you is that God won't stop you from sinning. If that's what you really want to do, He won't stop you. God will always respect your free will. He'll let you do whatever you want to do. But He will try to wake you up. He will try to get your attention. He will try to cause you to think through what you're doing so that you'll want to repent and turn around. The smartest thing you could do right now if you have secret sin in your life is the thing Judas never did. And that is to take the warning to heart and repent before disaster descends upon you because it will. And one more thing. Every person who's on the wrong road, as Judas was, eventually comes to his last chance to turn around. And I know there are a lot of people who have sin in their lives and they tell themselves maybe every day that one of these days they're going to get their act together. One of these days they're going to do the right thing. One of these days they're going to, they're going to fix this problem in their lives. And they just keep telling that, someday I'm going to do it. Someday I'm going to fix this. Someday I'm going to work on this. Someday I'm, going to, I'm really going to repent and, and straighten this part of my life out. But you know what? Sooner or later... Our some days run out. And I, I'll tell you right now, there are people every day who die. And they told themselves for years that they were going to fix that problem in their lives, that they were finally going to do it. They were going to get that thing straightened out. They were going to repent of that sin. And they died before they got it done. Happens all the time. Don't let that be you. You're going to run out of some days. In your life that you know you need to get right. Do it now.